So, uh, good evening, everybody, and uh, happy Parinirvana Day. And I'd just like to say it's uh, lovely to be here this evening amongst so many friends, so many very good friends, uh, picking up on what Mahashrada said. Uh, old friends and some new friends as well. So, yeah, thank you for coming. So, uh, in this talk, uh, which will be a relatively short one, you'll be glad to hear, um, I'd like to consider these things. So firstly, as you've heard, uh, the historic context of Parinirvana Day, and in particular how the Buddha's attendant and close friend Ananda responded to the Buddha's death. And then, uh, our own immediate experience of grief and the ways in which we might experience it. And then, what lies beyond that immediate experience? So maybe we have to believe, we have to believe that the pain that we feel in grief and in loss carries some opportunity, at least for us to learn. So in that context, I'll look at the ideas of firstly spiritual death and secondly spiritual rebirth, asking what do those terms mean to us as Buddhists? And then finally, <clears throat> it's important to me that this talk isn't a purely intellectual exercise, so I want to refer to uh, a couple of pieces of symbolism associated with Parinirvana Day and death. Um, so that's to say, firstly, the stupa. And secondly, if you can see him behind me here on the shrine, uh, the Buddha Vajrasattva. So firstly, um, let's remind ourselves of the historic reason for marking Parinirvana Day. So the word Parinirvana... Uh, and that's Sanskrit, or Parinibbana in Pali, essentially refers to the death of the Buddha. The Pari indicates finality, so Parinibbana or Parinibbana refers to the death of one who has already attained full awakening. In the Pali canon, the, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which Mahasrada has mentioned, uh, tells a long story of the Buddha's final few months of ministry of his illness, the circumstances of his death, and finally how various groups of his disciples responded to their loss. And I'm going to read two brief excerpts that focus on the response of Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and his attendant over the many years of his communicating the Dharma. It's particularly interesting to hear how Ananda tried to deal with the Buddha's death because at the time, at least, he wasn't himself enlightened. So in that sense, at least, we can maybe relate to him as a simple human being like ourselves. So firstly, I'm going to read from a section of the sutta called, it, itself called, Ananda's Appeal. And here the Buddha has predicted his own death to his disciples. And Ananda responds by begging him not to depart. Maybe he was thinking that a Buddha might be able to avoid death altogether and carry on giving to the world the much-needed gift of direct communication of the Dharma. So this is what the Sutta says. And, and by the way, on a technical note, the word Tathagata simply indicates the awakened one, the Buddha. So it says... Yet, Ananda, have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance? 
of that which is born, come into being, is compounded and subject to decay. How can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. And of that Ananda which the Tathagata has finished with, that which he has relinquished, given up, abandoned and rejected, his will to live on, the Tathagata's word has been spoken once and for all. Before long the Parinibbana of the Tathagata will come about. Three months hence the Tathagata will utterly pass away. And that the Tathagata should withdraw his words for the sake of living on, this is an impossibility. So those were the words of the Buddha to Ananda. And later in the Sutta, the Buddha talks at length to his closest disciples about practical matters concerning his death. And these include a request that his remains should be contained inside a stupa. So that's to say a structure of which we've got a model right here, and about which I'll say more soon. And in the section of the sutta called Ananda's Grief, we hear how Ananda was personally affected by that discussion, presumably because he was overwhelmed by the realisation that his friend and teacher really was about to die. So it goes as follows. And a vihara is effectively a monastery. Then the venerable Ananda went into the vihara, and leaned against the doorpost and wept. I am still but a learner, and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. And the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhus, saying, Where bhikkhus is Ananda? The Venerable Ananda Lord has gone into the Vihara, and there stands leaning against the doorpost and weeping. I am still but a learner, and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the Blessed One asked a certain bhikkhu to bring the Venerable Ananda, Ananda to him, saying, Go, bhikkhu, and say to Ananda, Friend Ananda, the master calls you. So be it, Lord. And that bhikkhu went and spoke to the Venerable Ananda as the Blessed One had asked him to. And the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, bowed down to him and sat down at one side. Then the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation and severance of that which is born, come into being, compounded and subject to decay. How can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness, indeed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taints. So in other words, soon Ananda himself would also be an awakened being. So in a sense, we might guess that the Buddha's disciples couldn't really understand what would happen to the Buddha after his death, 
any more than we can when people dear to us die. In the words of Shakespeare's Hamlet, when when our friends or family members leave the world of the living, they could be said to have gone to that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. Whatever we believe happens after death, we still feel grief when it takes away from us somebody we hold dear. And for this reason we can very easily relate to Arnander's grief. After all, on that personal level alone, he had been hit by the realisation that he was going soon to lose his cousin, friend and long-standing teacher. However, we also learn in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta that the Buddha's enlightened disciples didn't respond in the same way as Ananda. They simply accepted his teaching that all things and all beings are entirely subject to impermanence and didn't succumb to grief. Are we therefore expected to believe that the experience of awakening takes us completely beyond grief? With this question in mind, I'd like to turn towards our own experiences of loss and grief, an area that probably feels a lot more immediate and vivid than whatever we can pick up from reading the Sutta. So obviously, grief is a painful experience for any one of us, and one that I think every one of us in this room must have had in one way or another. It may well have arisen from the death of somebody close to us. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next section of the evening. But there are plenty of other types of loss that are likely to give rise to grief, and that you might very well recognise. For example, we may have suffered, and I use that word quite deliberately, uh, the end of a relationship, a sudden decline in our state of health, a realisation that our youth has somehow slipped away. People we love moving a long way away. The loss of employment. Or frustration for various reasons of our cherished plans for how we'd like our lives to unfold. Whatever the causes of grief might be, it's strong stuff. When it hits, we may feel symptoms of shock. From my own experience... I'd suggest that we might spend a lot of time feeling cold and shivery. We might experience loss of appetite and resulting rapid weight loss. We might have uncomfortably high states of energy and difficulty sleeping. These things are bad enough in their own right, but simply listing them doesn't come near to describing just how unpleasant the short-term response to grief can be. And there may be more we're likely to experience difficulty thinking straight, emotional volatility, tearfulness, and possibly depression and its manifestations. For example, apathy, feelings of pointlessness, and loss of self-worth. In a time of grief, we may be beset by feelings that things can never be the same again, and maybe that we'll never be happy again. This is serious, difficult and painful stuff. Recognising how intense the experience is then, I'd like to look a bit more closely at why grief affects us so strongly and what is actually happening when we feel it. So maybe we could say that in the various examples I've listed, uh, a part of our world view is hurt or damaged or broken 
This means, by extension, that a part of our self, using quotations, is hurt or damaged or broken. So why do I make this connection between worldview and self? Well, Buddhism teaches us that these two things aren't separate. What we conventionally regard as our self is effectively a part of our wider worldview. In fact, various traditional models like the five skandhas or the six element meditation help us to understand this. When our worldview is significantly damaged, for one of the reasons I've already described, so is our security in what we've been used to regarding as self. And maybe this explains why the feelings associated with grief are so painful, even devastating. I think it's really interesting, and for me definitely part of my own experience of grief, that something quite different can also happen in times like these, times when we feel it. So that's to say we feel a strong need to reach out to other human beings in a new and more direct way. Sometimes, though not always, we feel a strong need to be with the other people in our lives, whether that means family, friends, or maybe just the reassuring normality of everyday interactions with people we know. <clears throat> so I think that this reaching out can be very positive, very significant, and it seems to me that there are at least three interesting things happening when we reach out in this way. So looking at the three, uh, I'd suggest firstly and, and most straightforwardly, this reaching out to others is obviously an opportunity to strengthen our existing relationships. But secondly, and in a much broader sense, maybe even at the level of being a member of the human race, it reminds us strongly that in our grief and our loss, we share an experience and therefore feel a solidarity with just about every other human being. What's more, when we experience this solidarity of loss, we also experience solidarity of kindness, or we can experience that solidarity, and of metta, and maybe of compassion. And this is beautifully described in the American poet Naomi Shihab Nye's poem, Kindness, which I'm going to read to you now. So she says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in the white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. 
You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So those are two ways in which the need to reach out at times of loss brings opportunities for change. <coughs> Excuse me. The third way in which this happens is the one that I really want to concentrate on. Maybe less obviously than what happens in my first two examples, reaching out to others also weakens what we call our self-cherishing. Buddhist thinking, uh, particularly our teacher Sangharakshita's interpretation of Buddhist thinking, sees this weakening of our clinging to ourselves as a really important stage, in fact a very necessary stage of our spiritual development. To the extent that our attachment to self is weakened, this contributes to the stage of the spiritual path, in fact one stage of a total of five, that we've come to call spiritual death. Despite how it sounds, this isn't something dark and sinister. In fact, it's nothing like that, as it amounts to a growing freedom from the prison of the self. Think about what that language means. As we all know, at least some of the time, that prison of our own thoughts and self-obsession can be a cramped, uncomfortable and very challenging place. Some of us have meditated on spiritual death in earlier practices today. In fact, our next activity this evening, when we'll do something to help us witness each other's loss and grief, could also be seen as a practice that contributes in its way to the liberating practice of spiritual death. <clears throat> so how do, we, how do we relate to something else? How do we relate to spiritual rebirth, is the next question I'll be asking. So if we move on a step further, we can say that spiritual death is a big step forward, but the really exciting thing about spiritual death is that it has the potential to lead to something bigger still, which is the stage of spiritual rebirth. Of course, that's all very easy to say, but what does this, the term spiritual rebirth mean to you? I think this question is worth considering carefully for Buddhists, and it will certainly need a bit of unpacking if you're a newcomer to Buddhism, or maybe you're not a Buddhist at all. If you are a Buddhist, you'll be aware of the traditional Buddhist teaching about rebirth. After all, it's no secret. And you may have one of a wide range of possible responses to it. These may vary between the extremes of, I can't relate to this at all, for me death is final. And at the other extreme, I believe that I'm literally setting up the conditions now for my own future existences even if those existences are not necessarily repeat appearances of what we might call ourselves. Sometimes these extremes are described as the positions of nihilism, uh, the one that holds that death is absolutely final and that's that, and of eternalism, that there is some self 
that carries on through a long succession of deaths and rebirths, but in some way retains an essence of self. Somewhere between these extremes, we may prefer a more subtle interpretation. For example, um, as set out by my friend Nagapriya in his fascinating book, Exploring Karma and Rebirth, which I recommend. And of course, the Buddha encouraged us to find the more thoughtful middle ground between extreme ways of interpreting things. And that, after all, is what's meant by the famous Buddhist principle of the middle way. So personally, I'd suggest that it's more helpful for us to consider the idea of spiritual rebirth in terms of our relationship with ourself and to meditate and reflect on that relationship as well as just thinking about it. Buddhism teaches that the more we loosen our clinging to self, the freer we become. In other words, self is precisely what's getting in the way of our awakening, awakening with a capital A. So therefore, any awakening with a small a we might have isn't ours anyway. Put another way, anything that helps the self to get out of the way is potentially very helpful to our spiritual liberation. In fact, we absolutely need to find a way to get self-obsession out of the way. Without that happening, we certainly won't reach awakening. So, if it's loss and grief that serve that purpose, then they're as useful as any other catalyst. I think that when we suffer the sorts of losses I mentioned earlier, so to remind you of the examples I suggested, bereavement, the end of a relationship, a decline in our health, a realisation that youth has slipped away, people we love moving away, the loss of employment or the frustration of our life plans. When we suffer any of those things, in a sense we have no choice so I'll just repeat that, no choice, but to do some letting go. And this is easy to say, but actually embraces a lesson that's really big and important. So let me put it another way. However much we agonise over the meaning, in quotes, behind our grief, assuming that there is any meaning, however much we ask ourselves, why me? However we try to turn away from the pain of loss and grief, the raw truth is that we just can't escape that pain. We have no choice. We have no choice in the end but to feel it and let go of any thought of escaping it. By the way, we might, might succeed in escaping the pain of grief temporarily and we can all think of various ways in which we can manage that in the short term. But it's still guaranteed to come back, at least for as long a period as we need for our loss to be processed internally. Maybe, therefore, we could say that our feeling grief on the one hand and our skillful response to it on the other fit the stages of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth as described in Sangharakshita's five stages of practicing the Dharma. So this, I think, puts the whole business of grief and loss in a really important context, a spiritual context, to use that often misunderstood word. We can say that our grief is a part of spiritual death, but our choosing to let go and just give in to our grief 
is a part of spiritual rebirth, getting some of our old world view out of the way, and therefore also getting ourselves out of the way. It's important to see this not just as a theory. So, as I said at the start of this talk, uh, it's certainly not my intention that this should be just an intellectual exercise. So, to come right back to what we feel in times of loss, in times of great loss, yes, it's very painful, maybe to the extent that we don't know how we're going to cope, at least for a while. However, it's in that very feeling of being lost, of not knowing, that experience of vulnerability and tenderness that the crucial opportunity lies to go beyond the experience of spiritual death, (laughs) making way for the possibility of spiritual rebirth that can start us on the path to awakening itself. Maybe, maybe, and I'm not sure about this, but it seems to fit in with my experience, we can feel that bubbling below the dark surface of pain and loss, something, something else, something deep, exhilarating, liberating, and in a sense quite beautiful. So, uh, I've talked about loss and grief in this spiritual context, in quotes, of spiritual death and rebirth. And hopefully given an argument for why the connection between those areas of our experience is so rich in potential. Before I finish, I'd just like to broaden the topic out to suggest where these matters lie in in the bigger picture of Buddhist practice. And I hope this will be helpful for those of you who are relatively new to the Dharma and that it won't do any harm to hear it if you're not so new. Ultimately then, uh, we can perhaps say that spiritual death and spiritual rebirth, as I've now tried to define them, are the cutting edge, maybe the crux even, of Buddhist practice. At least that's true, according to Bhante Sangharakshita, when they're supported by three other parts of our practice, namely the integration of the disparate parts of our personalities, Uh, the development of our ability to relate to both self and others with positivity and kindness, and the openness, or we might say receptivity, to relate to our experience without the need to analyse and interpret and judge. Therefore, we end up with the well-known five dimensions of Dharma life that Sangharakshita uses as a compelling model for Buddhist practice. Integration, emotional positivity, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and receptivity. And within that broader context, we can maybe see how some very core, well-loved teachings fit in with the model of spiritual death and rebirth. For example, his encounter with the four sights, uh, sickness, old age, death, and the spiritual practitioner seeking a path to transcend those calamities, jolted Siddhartha Gautama towards reality and can have the very same effect on ourselves. Again, the threefold path of ethics, meditation and wisdom can be seen as just helping us to learn the facts of life. In other words, life is of short duration, frequently uncomfortable, and in no way as straightforward as we sometimes imagine. 
We also use some powerful symbols to help us along the path of spiritual death and rebirth. And I just want to mention two of them that we've incorporated into the shrine for Parinirvana Day. So the first of these is the stupa. At a practical level, a sort of monument for housing relics, usually ash and bone fragments after a body is cremated. In fact, the Buddha gives detailed instructions in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta for how his disciples were to place his own remains in a stupa. But the stupa also has a deeply symbolic side, which accounts for its very distinctive appearance. Its purpose is to remind us of the basic things that make up the world, in quotes, and therefore also give rise to the illusion of self. And if we contemplate these basic components, doing so can help us relate to how artificial and how impermanent our idea of self essentially is. In fact, order members practice the six-element meditation, which is based on the six parts of the stupa, which themselves represent the building blocks of our worldview. So just using our, our model stupa as, as a reference point, those, those parts are firstly earth down here. So earth is the energies of solid matter. For example, if we look at our world at large buildings, say, and looking at ourselves, maybe bones. And then we've, we've got water in this section here. So water represents the energies of liquids, for example, rivers or our blood. And then we've got fire. So fire, heat energy, for example, in our, our own heating systems or our own body warmth. Up here, we've got air, um, the energies of the atmosphere and gases in the wind and in our breath. And then the last two uh, elements we'll have to imagine because, well, they're a, bit more, they're a bit more subtle. They're not actually in our model. So up above air, we've got space. So the positions of things in the universe. So, for example, in terms of the places we're familiar with or just the dimensions of our bodies. And finally, somewhere up there, consciousness. So those things that are the manifestation of awareness and intelligence in the people and animals we observe and in the process of our own observing. So, so that's the connection between the imagery of the stupa and the stages of the path of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. And one other symbol that's closely associated with both spiritual death and rebirth is that of the Buddha Vajrasattva. So here he is behind me, this little rupa. Uh, and he symbolizes reality. So his name is Vajrasattva, and he holds a Vajra. So the Vajra represents reality. But he also represents the purification that's entailed in, in the ultimate letting go. And this purification is traditionally represented by the color of Vajrasattva's body, which is described as being as white as the reflection of sunshine on freshly fallen snow which is beautiful, I think. And I like to think of him as representing what I'd be like if I could truly see through and truly let go of my identification with the six elements. 
In other words, I'd then have a direct meeting with reality, or to put it another way again, with my own innate purity. And when we perform the sevenfold puja at the end of the evening, we'll be chanting, as you heard, the hundred-syllable mantra of Vajrasattva, of the Buddha, of the innate purity of reality. So, to sum up briefly, we've seen that, like Ananda, uh, none of us can avoid the pain of loss of one type or another. It's not something that we have any choice about. However, as in all things in the perspective of the Dharma, there is a place for choice. It's about choosing how we respond to our loss. If we make skillful choices, we have opportunities. Opportunities for letting go, for radical personal change, in other words, spiritual death, and ultimately for spiritual rebirth. So, I'll finish by borrowing again from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Uh, And we remember this is regarded as the word of the Buddha himself. So this is the section called The World's Echo. And when the Blessed One had passed away, simultaneously with his Parinibbana, the Venerable Ananda spoke this stanza. Then there was terror And the hair stood up when he, the all-accomplished one, the Buddha, passed away. Then when the Blessed One had passed away, some bhikkhus, not yet freed from passion, lifted up their arms and wept. And some, flinging themselves on the ground, rolled from side to side and wept, lamenting. Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the eye of the world vanished from sight. But the bhikkhus who were freed from passion, mindful and clearly comprehending, reflected in this way. Impermanent are all compounded things. How could this be otherwise? Thank you.